Welcome to the Positivity Podcast, where we explore the skills and strategies of personal development with cutting-edge researchers, authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. Meditation has become a hotter and hotter topic over these past years, but where's all the data amidst all this hotness? Sarah Lazar is at Harvard studying if and how meditation can promote focus, promote creativity, and reduce stress. Short answer, it does. In this episode, Sarah and I discuss what she's learned, meditation techniques, and conduct an impromptu guided meditation mid-podcast. I've been meditating for seven years and can say this episode has something for both expert meditators and for those who have no idea what meditation even is. And quick note, the audio quality isn't the best for this episode, but I hope that you can still gain some wisdom from the conversation. So without further ado, Sarah Lazar on how meditation can upgrade your human operating system. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I have to say, I have been meditating now for seven years. My dad actually teaches meditation. He's a, he's a psychologist and uh-huh. uses it a lot with his patients and, and really got me into it. And I think one of the hardest parts of meditation and explaining what meditation is, is to other people is this sort of notion that it's this very mystical thing Like you sit down and eternal peace comes to you (laughs) and almost like a pill, it it is such a a worthwhile thing and benefit to your life. And what really excited me is how you are a researcher and you're a scientist and you're studying the, the effects of meditation on the brain. Um, I'm curious to hear what got you interested in your research? And, and thank you so much for coming on the show too. Sorry, I'm just super excited. <laughs> I'm babbling on. And well, on. thank you for having me. No, it's always great to to talk to new people. So, uh, especially non scientists. So, um, yeah. So actually, I got into it through a knee injury. So uh, a friend and I were training for the Boston Marathon, and we overtrained, and I destroyed my knee. And so I went to see a physical therapist. And at that point, again, I thought was well, like you. I thought it was hippy dippy, mystical, magical nonsense. And, um, uh, but as a, the therapist told me I had to stop running and I should just stretch. And, um, as I was leaving the physical therapist's office, I saw an ad for a yoga class and I thought, oh, this would be a great way to just stretch, but you know, stay in shape because it's a vigorous yoga class. And so I went to the yoga class again, thinking it was, you know, mystical, magical, hippy dippy. I was there just purely as a form of physical therapy. And, uh, you know, but it had a radical impact on me. Like it just, it really made me calmer, made me better able to handle emotions, made me better able to handle other people. It was really, had a really profound effect on me. And at that point I was still in grad school. And so as I finished up my PhD work, I thought, wow, I want to, I want to study this. (laughs) And so, um, I figured out a way to switch and get, do this exclusively now. And so I've been doing this now for about 16, 17 years. Um, and, uh, this is what I do now. I just, all I do is study the effects of yoga and meditation on health and on the brain and on cognition. 
Wow. 16 or 17 years in, in the land of research. Is that a long time to be researching something or is it, do you feel like you're at yeah. just at the start of it? I mean, we're definitely at the start of it. I mean, so pain, right? They've been studying pain for 50 years now and they still understand just a tiny small part about pain. You know, it really takes a long time to, especially something like meditation where there's so many different aspects to it. It's going to take a long time to really understand all the different ways that's impacting us. Um, you know, and exercise too. I mean, people have been studying exercise probably from the start of time, and yet, you know, there's still so much we don't know about it, and so there's always more to learn. So, uh, so yeah, so we definitely we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot these past 15 years, but there's still a lot to do. So what have been some of the questions and hypotheses you've had, and what have you learned about those throughout the, the past years? So one of the biggest impacts on me was – so obviously when you're doing the yoga and the meditation, it feels great. You feel relaxed, you feel calm, you feel centered. But what I definitely experienced was that it was impacting the rest of my day as well. Like I said, so things, you know, pe there's people who piss me off. And after I started practicing, they just, you know, they'd say things. And then instead of being all pissed off, I would laugh, <laughs> you know, and be like, and I start to realize that, yeah, these people, why do they let them bother me so much, right? And just and somehow I could see that my attitude towards them had shifted and that I was less reactive. And so in my, I knew that something in my brain had changed. It was really clear to me that my brain was no longer working the same way it had worked before I started doing yoga. And I'd been a runner for many, many years. I'd run in high school and college. And so it wasn't just like the exercise aspect of yoga. And also I always stretched before and after yoga, sorry, before and after running. So I knew that there wasn't just, you know, that there was much more to yoga than just stretching, right? There was something else going on. And it was really clearly changing my brain because it was changing how I saw things, how I thought about things, how I interacted with other people and interacted with the world. So that was really my driving question. You know, what happens in your brain when you meditate and what are the long lasting changes? You know, how is it that it changes how you think about the world? So those are really the two driving questions that my research of the past 15 years. And so um, what we've been doing is we use the MRI, which is a way to look at both the structure of the brain, but also the function of the brain. And we've studied both long-term meditators and we've also studied novices who are going through like an eight-week program and we study their brain before and after. And so we've really tried to see sort of the full range of, of what's been happening. So... For those who haven't meditated before, what is meditation? <laughs> That's a very difficult question to answer. And how are you, how are you defining uh, it in your research? So, okay, so those are excellent questions. So there are many, 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 um, and yoga and tai chi, when properly taught, are different forms of meditation. Most times like, people say to me, oh, I just do yoga. I don't meditate. I just do yoga. You know, again, I mean, if you go and you're doing it at the gym and it's yoga for your butt, that may not be really yoga. But, you know, but when you really do yoga in a way that is, um, you know, inward focused and, um, you know, non-striving and very self-accepting, then that, that is yoga. That is meditation. Um, so, so, so generally speaking, I'm sure if there, you had a real yoga scholar or a Buddhist scholar here, they would argue with this definition. In general, what most forms of meditation have in common is that you choose something to focus on very deliberately. In most forms of meditation, there's something. 
and then you focus on it to the exclusion of other thoughts. And so, for instance, there are some forms of meditation where you might use a mantra you know, or some sort of word that you repeat over and over again. Some people might use like a flickering candle. Um, you just stare at the flame and that. Sometimes you'll see this really elaborate in, um, uh, visual um, images, like so these geometric designs, and they just stare at those images. Um, and then in the Buddhist tradition, which is what I study, they're um, primarily one of the main practices is focusing on body sensations and in particular sensations related to breathing. So you might just notice as your belly expands and contracts, what does that feel like? Or as the air passes through your nostrils, what does it, the air actually feel like? And it sounds a little odd, a little weird or whatever. But the idea is that as you do that, what you become aware of is much more than that. Like that's what the main focus is, but you really start to notice what else is going on. Um, uh, and that's true sort of of all the different forms of meditation. Um, and this is really what the mindfulness is about. You hear a lot about mindfulness these days. So there is paying attention to one object, but then if you do it mindfully, you're sort of scanning the background of everything else that's going on in your mind. Like all the little things, the thoughts and feelings that sort of blip through your mind very briefly, you sort of just notice those and you sort of become aware of them. And as you do that, you start noticing all sorts of really cool, interesting things. Um, but that's sort of, again, some people include that, some people don't in their meditation. So, uh, so the main part of meditation is choosing one object and focusing on it and to excluding all of the thoughts. And what that happens when you do that is that um, you know, your thoughts start to calm down because normally your thoughts are racing, racing fast. And the thoughts start to calm down and you become clearer and more centered and calmer. And, um, and then usually you can think in a more clear and often creative way um, because you don't have all this nonsense going on in the back of your mind. Sorry, that's a long answer. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. Yeah. Could you lead us in a five-minute meditation <laughs> session? Sure. Okay. So, and so again, what I practice is this breath awareness. So that's what I'll lead us in. So, um, so you should get into a comfortable position. And lots of times people say, "Oh, you know, do I have to do something with my hands?" No. In this form of meditation, you can just have your hands on your lap, um, either just resting on your knees or resting, you know, um, like this in your lap. Do, just do I you need want. a pillow, or can I just sit? Nope. You can just sit on a couch. You can do it lying down as long as you're able to stay awake. Um, sometimes people have like back pains or knee pains. And so the main thing is just find a position that's comfortable. And so again, usually just sitting in a chair, just sitting in a chair or on a couch or, um, you know, on a floor, if you are sitting on the floor, it usually helps, but you don't think just in it perfectly legit. So just get comfortable. And I like to start, um, if it's comfortable for you, gently close your eyes. If that feels weird or not comfortable, you can keep them open. Um, if they are open, then just pick one spot a couple feet in front of you to focus on. Just in a very relaxed, general way. You don't have to like be laser focused on it. Just in that general area, and just, you don't want to be looking all over the room. You just want to keep your air, gaze in one general area. And then with your mind's eye, go inside. And I like to start by just sort of getting a sense of what does your body feel like right now? So just sort of scanning briefly through your body and noticing, um, you know, what is your posture? Like, are you all slumped? Are you sitting up straight and trying to, like, keep your shoulders all, t you know, like like army, you know, stance? 
Um, and just sort of noticing what your posture is and just letting it be relaxed. So you definitely, you want it to have a straight spine and sort of be erect. So you don't want to be like too loose, but you also don't want to be too tense and tight. So just relaxed, but upright. And where do you hold your tension? Everyone holds it somewhere different. So maybe it's around the jaw, maybe it's in your shoulders, maybe it's in your hands and your, and your fists or something like that. Just scanning through your body and noticing if there's any tension. And if there is, just inviting that part of the body to gently relax. And it's perfectly fine. You know, we all have tension in our body. And just getting a sense of the body and whether we feel like right now. And then choosing one thing to focus on for the next few minutes. So again, that could be the rise and fall of the belly, or it could be the sensation of breathing passing through your nostrils. And just noticing it. There's nothing right or wrong to notice. It's just because you have to focus on something. You can't just have a completely empty mind. You have to have something to focus on. So just noticing the rise and fall of the belly or the, the passing of the air. And of course, your mind's going to wander off. That's what it does. And when you notice that your mind has wandered off, just bring it back. And we're just training our mind to stay focused on one sensation. And the key thing is the sensation. So you really want to be feeling it, not thinking about it, not seeing it from outside your body, you know, or imagining what it looks like or imagining what it feels like. But what does your belly actually feel like? What is the wall of your, of your um, belly? What does the skin feel like as it expands and contracts? Can you actually feel the skin expanding and contracting? Or the air, what does your inside of your nostrils actually feel like as the, the air passes through them? And again, there's nothing, there's no right thing to feel or right, correct thing to notice, or you know, there's nothing to get right or wrong. It's just relax and just let that be your soul care right now. And maybe some thoughts pop up of like, what is this? This is weird. Or oh, I like this. Or oh, I can do this. What's so difficult about this? Those are just thoughts. Just notice them and put them aside and go back to the sensations. Periodically checking in with your body and noticing if you've slumped or if your posture has changed. Are you starting to relax? It's fine if it happens. It's fine if it doesn't. Just noticing.
And just again and again, the mind will wander. It will be trying to figure the situation out. It will be thinking about what's going on. Just put those thoughts aside and come back to the breathing sensations. So now we'll come to an end. So again, just checking in real quick and noticing what is your mind like right now? What is your body like right now? How have these last few minutes impacted you? And just knowing that and being aware of that. And then as you're ready, opening your eyes starting to move a little bit and coming back into the room. <laughs> What'd you think? That was great. Okay. <laughs> What's interesting. And I'd, I'd be curious if we had a few listeners in this conversation with us right now, I remember my first times meditating, feeling really stressed out and feeling like I was really bad at it because my mind kept on wandering. I'm curious, yep. I'm curious what you say to those people um, and how you frame the context of the benefits of meditation, having that been their best or their first experience. You know, the first time I had an ice cream cone, I was ecstatic. So I'm going to have the ice cream cone again. <laughs> like, you know, right. why should I stay in meditation if, if, if that was kind of a stressful experience? And I'm sure right. some people had good experiences too. Right. Yeah, no, it's a very common, very extremely common <laughs> reaction. The mind's going to wander. Of course it is. I think a lot of it is expectation. You know, a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to meditate, and then instantly I'm going to become calm and serene, and my mind's going to stop wandering, and my mind's just going to come clear, and boom, and that's it. It's like, no, not like that at all. Um, and it's sort of like someone who, um, hold on, uh, um, you know, it's basically been a couch potato and asking them to run a marathon, right? <laughs> you don't do that. Right? You know, and even running, I remember the first time, uh, I used to run cross country. I said that, um, in high school, I remember the first time we just had to run a mile and I think I got about a half mile and it's just like, Oh my God, I can't run anymore. You know, and I had to stop and walk and then, you know, I'd run a few more feet and then stop and walk. And yeah, I mean, you can't, I mean, just as your body needs time to develop the muscles to exercise and be able to do the things that bodies can do, you know, the mind needs time and lots of practice to be able to come to the point where it's relatively quiet and calm. Um, and I can tell you, because I've talked to very advanced teachers, it never goes completely silent, right? Unless, like, really, like you're like a monk in a cave somewhere. Um, yeah, there's always going to be a little bit of stuff in the background chattering away, but it changes like the quality of the, of the chatter changes. And also the time when you're focused and things are relatively calm and peaceful become longer and longer. And the periods where your mind's lost and whatever becomes shorter and shorter. So, um, uh, so it is, it's a gradual thing. 
and uh, don't beat yourself up. <laughs> you know, it's completely normal. The mind likes chatter. The mind likes to do those things. It's what it does all day for the last however long you've been alive. Um, and it's going to take time. So you just have to be patient. Yeah, it was funny. Actually, one of the first episodes we had Matthew Richard uh-huh. on, on the show, who, who's yeah. is monk. a yeah. monk and doing a lot of meditation. And what really clicked for me is when he said, you wouldn't expect to jump in the water and be able to swim across the English Channel. Exactly. <laughs> pick up the basketball for the first time and make a three-point shot. You you'd have a you know you right. get one three-point shot in after maybe fifty shots, and it's the same thing like meditation. How can we expect any practice to be different? And I think it, it does go to those expectations of of it being mystical and <laughs> right. And that's yeah. And even. Um, because again, a lot of the research I've done is on a lot of the research that has been done is on these eight-week programs, and these eight-week programs are fantastic, and people do have life-changing experiences in these eight weeks. But you know, so they're like this amount of stress, so now they're this amount of stress. You, you don't go from high-stress person into you know California beach dude in eight weeks. <laughs> everything is, everything is relative. Right. And so, uh, and also what I see is often is that, you know, often we have many different stressors in our life and many different conflicts in our life. And for, at least for me and for people I've seen is that they tend to go down one by one. Like you tend to realize, okay, this is an issue in my life. You start meditating around it. And then gradually that changes. And then you realize, okay, there's this other issue in my life. And so then, so again, it's something, it's a very gradual process. It takes really years, but it's, it's, it's profound though. So there is definitely impact. Again, it's a lot like exercise, you know, it's not like, cause exercise is a great stress reducer, right? Um, but even though people run and exercise, they still, their stress is still there. Life is stressful. There's no um, silver bullet. <laughs> exactly. And you have to keep exercising, right? So I mean, really, it really is exercise for the mind. So let's. Let's move into the research and get yes. get into the nitty gritty of what you're finding. I mean, I have I have so many questions in terms of, you know, <laughs> I guess let's just start with the research and then, and then I'll take my right. questions from there. Right. So the first study we did was we recruited um, people who've been practicing this form of meditation for at least three years and some of them have been practicing for 20 or 30 years. And, um, we brought them in and we just had them lie in a scanner and we took pictures of their brain, um, just really like the structure of their brain. And we compared it to people who had never meditated before or had very, very minimal meditation, prior meditation experience. And what we found was that the actual structure of the brain was different, that there were parts of the brain in the long-term meditators that where there's more gray matter and gray matter is like the thinking part of the brain. You got the gray matter and the white matter. The white matter is just wiring. The gray matter is where the actual computation is happening. And so there's more gray matter in the brains of the meditators compared to the controls and not everywhere, just in a few very specific regions. And this is consistent with other studies. So for instance, they found that for instance, um, professional musicians have more gray matter in music areas compared to amateur musicians, and then non-musicians have the least amount of gray matter in those regions. Similarly, um, uh, uh, people who speak multiple languages have more gray matter in language areas compared to people who only speak one language. And then there was a study where they took people who had never, ever uh, juggled before, and they scanned them. They taught them how to juggle for a couple months. They scanned them a second time. And they found that an area of the brain that's involved in detecting visual motion got bigger. 
And then they had them stop juggling and that region then got smaller. And so it's very much use it or lose it. And it's also known like, you know, again, athletes, like the, the, um, uh, the motor cortex, the part of the brain that controls uh, how your body moves, that part of the brain gets big, is much, much bigger in athletes compared to non-athletes. Um, so all of this together suggested that these brain regions that are bigger in the meditators are regions that are important for meditation and that by practicing and exercising that part of the brain, those parts of the brain are getting bigger and you're more developed. So the first study, again, was just long-term meditators versus controls. Uh, but the problem with that, of course, is that these, those regions might have been re bigger for other reasons. So, for instance, a lot of um, people who meditate are also vegetarian or they eat healthfully. Um, so maybe it was like their diet or something else about their lifestyle, right? Or just the people who choose to meditate might have larger gray matter in those regions than people who don't yeah, meditate. Th that was something I was so, going to ask. Like, do we understand yeah. why meditation helps like the bi biological mechanisms or are we just noticing broad correlations? Cause if someone is right. going to commit to meditation, I'm sure they're, they're putting an active effort into their own wellness. And, right. And so how, did you, did you test for that? Right. So in that first study, we couldn't do that, right? Because it's just, we just took people on two different days. So then the second study we did was we took people who had never, ever meditated before and they either went through a meditation class or we just scanned this eight week meditation class or we uh, scanned them eight weeks apart. And so those were the controls. And what we found was that there was indeed several brain regions that got bigger over the course of the eight weeks compared to the people who didn't do anything in between and just got scanned eight weeks apart. And the areas of the brain that changed are consistent with what we know meditation does. So, for instance, one of the brain regions is an area that's involved in mind wandering, right? And um, it's a little counterintuitive as to why it should get bigger. Um, but sometimes, because some neurons are, um, you know, sometimes more gray matter is more activity and sometimes it's less because some neurons are actually inhibitory. And so we think what's happening is this case is that the, it's more inhibitory neurons and they're turning off that region. Um, and so this is an area that got bigger. And then um, another region that got bigger is the hippocampus, which is important for learning and memory. And again, because a lot of what you do is you have to keep remembering to come back, remembering to come back to, you know, oh, okay, my mind's wandering. I got to remember to come back to just paying attention to my breath. Um, another region that actually got smaller is the amygdala, which is the fight or flight part of the brain. It's the stress part of the brain. And other people have shown um, in animal studies that if you take an animal and stress it out, that that same part of the amygdala gets bigger and that um, and it's related to the stress. And so what we found was that the amygdala got smaller and that was related to their self-reported stress. We gave them a questionnaire about how stressed do you feel. So the more stress reduction people reported, the smaller the amygdala got. So this gave us some confidence that these changes that we saw were real, that there's something to them, um, and that, um, you know, that it wasn't, you know, just people saying, oh, yeah, I feel better, that there's actually something there behind it. Wow. So in each of these studies, you know, you know, there's so many variables, and I'm curious for people who are listening to this and now say, oh, I really want to try meditation. How long should it be for? Is there a location? <laughs> Is there, what's the frequency? Is there right. a type that's the best? You know, maybe we're too early, but I'd love to hear your perspective on all those variables. Right. Yeah, those are the questions everyone always asks me. So the short answer is there's no good answer, or there's no there's no there's no scientific data on that. 
Um, so what I answer though, is that it's a lot like exercise. So it's like saying, you know, what's better running or swimming, right? Hmm. They're both good, right? Some people really love to swim and hate to run. Some people love to run and hate to swim. So, um, again, this is a form of meditation that we happen to study because it's the one I happen to practice, but there, you know, there's some people who just love mantra, you know, and so if you are a mantra type of person, go do mantra meditation. If you like this breath awareness, do the breath awareness. If you like yoga, do yoga or Tai Chi. It's all good. Um, you know, at least that's my opinion. <laughs> um, and I suspect though, that just like we know, for instance, like weight bearing exercise is really good for your joints. Um, you know, and that, you know, but then if you're having, um, you know, knee problems then, you know, or your like leg problems that maybe swimming is better because it puts less pressure on your joints, you know, that, uh, uh, not, uh, so weight bearing is good for, uh, bone density. That's what it is. Um, you know, that the different, different types of exercise, you know, all of it is good for general health, but there are subtle differences. You know, some are more legs, some are more arms, you know, some are more, you know, you get more beefy, some of you are more lean. So all of them have subtle effects. Similarly to the different types of meditation, um, will likely, and we have a tiny bit of data on this, though it's not quite ready for prime time, but there's definitely some evidence that suggests that there are some similarities and also some differences between the different types of meditation, which makes sense. Again, like we are running versus swimming. Um, so, so I would say, you know, just find one that you like and that works for you. Um, and maybe try a couple of different ones, different, you know, see what you like. Then in terms of when to do it and how to do it and how much to do it, again, there's every teacher says something different. Uh, some traditions say you have to do it at 4 a.m. because that's the time the energy of the universe is best. Um, you know, that was originally developed in India. And, of course, 4 a.m. in India is like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> but what's actually known scientifically is actually uh, um, 4 a.m. is actually time when you get this burst of cortisol. And it's actually there's, it's a really interesting time of day. Uh, things actually start body actually starts waking up at 4 a.m. Uh, even though you may not actually wake up until 6 or 7 or 8 a.m., you know, things start to happen in your body around 4 a.m. So if you do, and, and it is an ideal time to meditate, but you don't have to. I mean, certainly, um, you know, I meditate all different times a day. Um, and so I think it's, again, what, where you can fit it in. You know, a lot of people like to do it first thing in the morning because the mind tends to be calmest and clearest the first thing in the morning, whenever that may be for you. Some people like to do it at the end of the day to help them clear out their mind. Um, you know, we practice in my lab during the uh, couple times during the week. We'll practice like two o'clock in the afternoon. So um, I know some people who. Um, and this also the next question is how long. Um, you know, sometimes if I'm just like really stressed, sometimes I'll just do like a minute in my office. You know, close the door and just do a minute or two or three. You know, just get focused <laughs> and then dive into my work. Um, you know, if you don't have an office door, go into the bathroom and close the stall and just meditate in there, right? Um, you are just, you know, <laughs> stare at the screen and, you know, pretend to, <laughs> you know, whatever, you know, if you're in a cubicle or something. Um, you know, and then in terms of how long, again, some people say just five or ten minutes, especially when you're first starting out. You know, just doing five or ten minutes a day is great. Um, most teachers recommend, say, 30 or 40 minutes. That can be a lot for people. Um, you know, my, again, my general philosophy is sort of like exercise is like, you know, do what you can, what fits, um, you know, ideally meditate 40 minutes a day every day, but if you can only do that once or twice a week, that's great. If you can only do five or 10 minutes a day, that's great. Um, and then just over time you'll figure out what works for your schedule and what you need to do. 
So again, I think the most important thing I think is that there's no shoulds, right? Just doing any little bit is going to help. Sort of like exercise. Yeah. And I, I find that it's helpful. So it's interesting. I had a meditation teacher who told me that it's good to try a practice out for a while, maybe yeah. three months mm-hmm. instead of like a buffet, trying this out, trying this out, trying this out. Because there's definitely, in my experience, I found a switching cost because to start a yeah. practice and sit and focus on your breath, that's something new that is inherently distracting and, you know, Right, you're kind of unsettled when you're doing it the first couple of times because you you're so unused to it. But then right. after maybe doing it for a week or two, it becomes more routine, and you can really focus on the practice instead of this weird sort of "Oh my gosh, what am I doing? This is weird. I'm not used to it." Sort of feeling. Right. So that's something that I, I found really helpful in the way right. I was thinking about it. You know, there's definitely right. So there's again, there's sort of two. Um, there's a little bit of two camps because I do feel like. Yeah, that is definitely true, right? Because again, a lot of people say, oh, I tried it. I didn't really like it. And they don't really give it an honest try. So I do feel like, and actually this is true, like of any new behavior, they say you have to do it for a month for it to really become a habit, right? And to really understand it and to get into it. So I agree, like, you know, one, giving something a month or two. Um, But I guess in terms of the buffet, you might want to, so for instance, I know here in Boston, there's... um, you know, they have the adult education class. They actually have one of the towns has an adult education class where it's like I think six weeks. Every week they teach you a different style of meditation, and then the, and you, for that week you're supposed to practice it. But then the idea is that okay, then you pick one that you like, and then that's what you practice going forward. So um, you know that might be something you might want to try. Like if you really dislike one, maybe try another one. But yeah, you do you want to avoid like. Um, but then really committing to that one, like you don't want to be like, okay, well I'm going to do this for five minutes and then I'm going to do that for five minutes and then I'm going to do this. And, and then while you're sitting you're like, oh no, I'm not liking this. Okay. I'm going to switch to this. Oh no, I don't like that. I'm going to switch back. You know, really for at least for those 30 minutes that, or however long you're sitting, really commit to one practice and then playing with, you know, saying, okay, for the next week, I'm going to just do this. This is going to be my practice. This is the only thing I'm going to do. And then if that looks well and you like it, okay, now I'm going to do this for a month or three months or whatever and really making commitment and sticking with that commitment. Are yeah, I think cer- that there's a lot of wisdom in that. Are there certain types of meditation that are more correlated with some of the different benefits, such as is there a meditation that is really good for relieving stress or a meditation that's really good for relieving clarity? Um, right. And also, you know, what do you focus on? Does what you focus on matter? You know, you're saying focus right. on your breath. Right. So again, you'll get a lot of different answers. So for me, stress is sort of like general health and uh, exercise. So again, you know, is soccer better than, or you know, sorry, is running better than swimming? So as far as we know, all forms of yoga meditation reduce stress. There has not been a direct study to say, you know, okay, this one's better than this one. And again, I suspect that lots going to have to do with preferences because I definitely know many people who tried one and that's why I think there's so many different types out there is, you know, it's probably a little bit of a personality thing. You know, some people just really love mantra and it's what they need and what they like. Some people really despise mantra. <laughs> they really can't do it. And I'm sure that the people doing mantra and the people doing, you know, breath that they can, you know, for both of them, it's incredibly stress reducing. Um, but you know, the other technique wouldn't work for that person. So I think that that's probably more of an issue than, you know, mantra is better than breath or breath is better than mantra. It probably has more to do with the personality of the person or whatever it is that they like. 
Um, what was the second question you asked me? The second part was... Uh, Does what we focus on... What would you focus on matter? So, again, different people tell you things. So the short answer is, in subtle ways, yes. So, again, it's like, you know, if you're doing something that's more upper body versus versus lower body, you know, you're going to develop your arms more than your legs or vice versa. So, for instance, uh, another form of meditation, which is very popular right now is compassion meditation where you um, repeat phrases to help generate feelings of compassion for yourself and for others. Um, oops, excuse me. Sorry. I didn't want to pull that out. Um, and so, and there's some data showing that that for, um, especially for anxiety and depression, that's extremely powerful and that may be better than, the pure breath awareness or the mantra that, uh, because there is this sort of emotional component to it. Um, but I know some people, myself included, when I first started doing that, I hated that form of meditation (laughs) and I sort of avoided it for a long time. Um, but then later on I started doing it a little bit differently and I liked it better. And so the other thing is also the teacher, because you know, how the teacher teaches is a huge, it's like anything else, you know, um, you know, some years I loved math, some years I hated math growing up because it was a lot dependent on the teacher, right? So it may also be, it may be as much about the teacher as it is about the form of meditation. But anyway, so the compassion meditation does seem to be really useful for, I say anxiety and depression. Um, and, but I think the, and then the other ones where you're focusing on say a breath or a mantra that might be better for more, say focus and clarity, maybe. So there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that, but there, again, there hasn't been really good hectic comparisons of that yet. So it sounds like when, if you're starting your meditation practice or trying to deepen it, it's almost an optimization of your preferences for the different types, as well mm-hmm. as your day-to-day life schedule and fitting things in. And it shouldn't necessarily be continued to be thought as a mystical thing that there's a correct answer, but rather it's like going to a, a healthy food buffet where there's lots of healthy options. Exactly. And you can, t- you know, you may like the asparagus, but you may not like the spinach, but Right. Just choose whatever you choose will be helpful. <laughs> exactly. That's, I like that analogy. That's a really good analogy. Yes. Yes. And But occasionally trying. That's the thing too. So maybe you do have your main practice, but I would also suggest occasionally trying other things because often you learn something when you try something new. You know, so a little cross-training is also good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Try your piece. You may not like the piece. Occasionally give them a try, you know? So, um, yeah, I like that analogy a lot. Is there... You know, I'm thinking... Our audience is really focused on their growth and personal development and becoming the best person they can be. Is there a learning curve or a benefits curve in terms of meditation in that if you are doing it for one month, you'll get this benefit and then over the next two months, the benefits will grow even more or maybe the research isn't there yet? Yeah, there's definitely no research on that. Um, Do you you know about Headspace? Yes. Okay, so we should definitely talk about Headspace. We'll come back to that. Um, But it's related to this. So in my experience, so everyone has their own issues, right? Everyone has their own stuff. And usually we're aware of some of our stuff, but we're not aware of other parts of our stuff. We all have stuff about us that we don't see, right? And so often when we start meditating, you know, stuff that we're kind of sort of aware of that we know are issues in our lives, that the meditation helps us see it in a new way, right? And we sort of start to be able to step back and sort of see it 
with a new light and a new perspective. And so that's what starts to change. But gradually over time, at least what I've experienced and some people I know have experienced is that that stuff that's sort of invisible to us, gradually we start to see our stuff. And it's really, it's, it's, um, depressing <laughs> and it's really hard. Cause it's like, Oh my God, boy, was I a butthead. Right. Or, Oh my God, I can't believe I said that, you know, and Oh my God, I can't believe I acted in that way. Right. And you start to see that. And it's really hard to, to recognize and realize and admit that yes, maybe I'm not the most wonderful, perfect, you know, person I thought I was. Um, but with practice and this is where the self-compassion really helps, right. And the compassion practices really help is you realize, okay, I'm human. Right. And yes, I said that and it's okay. And so definitely, yes, that over time, those, you do start to see other things, but I would say that every path is different, you know, because what I become aware of and what I see and what I'm working on is going to be different from what you're seeing. And I don't think there's a set order. Um, so getting back to Headspace. So Headspace is this wonderful uh, uh, webpage, and I think you can have it on the computer. Uh, it's an iPhone app. I know that. Um, and it's really cool. So it's meditation instruction. But it's exactly that. They have, so they have basic meditation instruction, but then they have all sorts of uh, frequently asked question pages. But then they sort of say, okay, well, you know, I'm having issues in my relationship. How do I bring meditation and mindfulness into my relationships? I'm having, you know, trouble focusing at work. How do I bring mindfulness into work? I'm having issues about, you know, X. How do, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, troubling thoughts. How do I deal with you know, my troubling thoughts? And so there's like five or six or seven different domains. And they talk about applying meditation to each of those different domains. Because again, these are all the things that we're going to apply into and change over time. It's just, and it keeps changing. Like, and it becomes more and more subtle, I would say, because maybe there's a big issue, but then you start to see that, okay, well, it's, there's, it's fractal, right? There's more and more layers to the issue and you sort of see it in new ways and in more subtle ways in your life. Cause often those things are in multiple, you know, in fractal ways in your life and, and that you don't recognize. It makes a lot of sense to see that when you yeah. sit down and even in the exercise and you start really paying attention to yourself and being aware of your body, you're also simultaneously being aware of your mind and there's no escape. Right. <laughs> there's no, TV show to watch or internet browser to, to look at or Facebook exactly. app to scroll through. And so it can be kind of scary because you're almost facing the honesty of what's going on in your mind and what you're, you're, you're dealing with exactly. and thinking about and almost peering into your subconscious. And oh, yes. that can be beautiful if you look at it. Oop, talk about being distracted. <laughs> that's okay Every, yep. everybody return your attention to the podcast I think there was also something it sounded like it was crashing earlier so I apologize mm -hmm. but I guess it'll. It, that's just an exercise for this podcast on staying focused um, <laughs> exactly. thank you fire trucks for coming on time <laughs> uh -huh. um, but it, you're, you're kind of facing your own honesty and from there I found is the jumping part, jumping point from which to deal with it. It's not like meditation is going to cure it, but it's going to make you more aware. And then you can make hopefully wiser decisions in your life and right. kind of recognize the presence of things that you may not have recognized as you were going about your day, being distracted by thoughts and texts and notifications and exactly. buzz buzz and stuff like that. Exactly. So the, the thing I like to say is we all have friends who – you know, have a weird habit or there's something about them that's whatever. And you might say, doesn't that person realize 
And of course the answer is no, they don't realize, right? And we all, each and every person on the planet has something that they do or say or something about them that they don't realize, that they're not aware of. And, but everyone around them is aware of it, right? And so with the practice, you start to see that stuff. And then you realize that, oh my God, everyone else notices about me. I did not see this. And so that, again, it's painful when you first start to realize that, oh my God, I have this flaw. Like again, you always think yourself as perfect, but no, I have this flaw. And then I had this other flaw. And, oh my God, I have all these flaws. It's hard. It's really hard. And that's again, where it's, you know, realizing, okay, I'm human. It's okay. This is normal. And you know, it's okay. Everyone still loves me. <laughs> you know, I still have friends, even though I had this flaw. It's tough, but it's also, you know, you use the term training your mind by focusing on compassion. When you get distracted, you're, you're priming your mind to come back to that. And right. so, you know, while it's tough, I think it's, it's also beautiful in that sense that you're, you're building towards a more positive <laughs> outlook yeah. or anchor. Right. Exactly. And so in the Buddhist tradition, it's called equanimity, which means equal. And the idea is that, um, that there's this balance and it's that it's not that everything is okay, but that what is that everything is okay, but it's just that, um, or is it, can I be okay with things as they are? So even though I have these flaws, can I be okay that I have these flaws? Other people have flaws. Can I be okay with this person, even though they have this flaw? The world is totally messed up and there's all sorts of problems in the world. Not that we don't try to change things, but we accept that, okay, this is how the world is right now, right? So there's traffic, there's pollution, there's war, there's horrible people, there's murderers, everything. And we're not condoning it, but we're saying, okay, this is the state of mankind right now. And it's the state of me and it's the state of the people around me. And so, and I can't change it. So rather than being stressed or angry or whatever, disappointed in the world, can I say, okay, this is how it is and be okay with it. And because really stress, this is actually really important. This is one of the most important things I learned from my work (laughs) is that stress happens when things are not as you expect them to be. Right. So, and it's really, and I see it over and over again. It's like, I'm upset when things are not the way I want them to be, right? And of course, things are never the way you want them to be, right? You always want everything to be perfect and things are not perfect. So if you understand and allow that things are not going to be perfect, I'm not perfect, the people around me are not perfect, the world is not perfect, the stress goes away. And that's really ultimately what meditation is about. That's the goal of meditation. The ultimate goal of meditation is to really get that at the most deep, profound level that this is it and this is okay, and I can have zero expectations about what's going on around me. And a really, and there's a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, you know, that's, that's me. I've got that. I'm, you know, I'm, I've got no expectations. That's an illusion. <laughs> when you get down deeper, really, you know, it's something, something's going to piss that person off at some point or they're, so they're going to be disappointed. There's going to be something that's going to eventually, and then they, it's all going to unravel and they'll see, but, uh, and then that's okay. And that's okay. And that's really what meditation's all about. It's actually really important to see that first step, you know, to see that, yeah, really, I do have some expectations about things. One of my favorite metaphors about meditation that reminds me of what you just said is if you picture two scenarios uh, and both of them are cups falling off the table and you can picture the cup on the table, the cup in midair and the cup on the ground. That's the first scenario. You have three, three pictures of it. Uh Uh-huh. In, the more, in a more mindful state, 
those three pictures, there's the stream of 97 pictures or 100 pictures that mm-hmm. you see step by step, the cup falling. And, you know, we can live our whole lives un- unmindful of what's happening and not taking a pause to look inside ourselves and take an inventory of what's really going on, what's really on my mind. And it's only mm-hmm. when we do that that we can kind of recognize the flaws and then act upon it. So it, it's almost a, a self-awareness technique. And, you know, for everybody, <laughs> time's moving. And, and are you aware of what's happening both within yourself, exactly. within other people and within the world? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's actually a really great thing because, you know, as it falls, you're like, oh, no. And maybe I can reach for it. Oh, no, it's too late. And then, it's, and then oh, it's smashed. Oh, my God, that was my favorite mug and whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, in the, like you said, those three seconds, there's probably like 20 different thoughts that went through your head. And normally, normal person would just say, oh, you know, they'd only be maybe aware of one. But when you really start tuning in to all the things you start to notice and you start to notice like, oh, then the, I want to stop it. I want to, you know, and oh, I don't want it to fall. You, all these little very quick, 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 quick little emotions and thoughts that go through your mind in those two seconds that's falling. Yeah, that's a wonderful example. So back to science. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, sorry. Uh-huh. Yeah. Let's say people have been meditating and they're, they're feeling this benefit. I'm sure a question that are, that's on a lot of people's minds is, are the benefits and the gray matter that's grown within the brain, is this temporary to the times when you are meditating? And is it temporary to the times when you're in a habit of meditation for six months? And if I stopped then for three years, does my brain still have those aspects and does that growth stay? Yes and no, right? So a little bit like you never learn, forget how to ride a bike, right? So that once once it's there, it's there, but not completely. So same with exercise, right? So if you trained really hard for a couple months, you know, you get pretty buff. But then if you turn to a pouch potato, those muscles are going to go away, right? <laughs> um, but you might retain some of it, right? So So definitely while you're meditating is definitely a pretty – nice state right and pretty calm you know if you're lucky right <laughs> or not just if you're lucky you know if um you know because and some and it varies tremendously from day to day right because even you might have a bad day today but then tomorrow you might have a great day another day might be just somewhere in between right but generally speaking right if you practice and it goes well you know you're in a pretty calm relaxed state um what i experience what many other parents people experience is that you know when i'm regularly meditating when i'm you know that some of those benefits last throughout the day, right? That there's definitely, I know a lot of people who say, you know, they can tell if they miss a day, you know, that they just don't, they're off all day. They're just a little bit more restless, a little more agitated on days they don't meditate compared to they do meditate. Um, same, I've heard the same thing from people who exercise regularly. They know, their body knows that they haven't exercised that day. Um, so, but it's not, you're not as calm and whatever as you were while you're actually sitting and meditating. And then, but then, yeah, but if you then stop, gradually the benefits go away. And so, but there's some things though that you learn that don't change. Like, you know, if you, cause again, you start to see the world in a different way and some of that doesn't go away. Like, you know, you start to say like, oh, this, you know, situation X pisses me off and I always get pissed off about this. And then you have a, aha, cause you start to see like all those thoughts and emotions that you have around that. And you start to understand why that thing pisses you off. So then, you know, after you see that and understand that, that's never going to go away. You know, that thing is never going to piss you off again. <laughs> so you'll have Even to though, change. 
What's that? Yeah. So there is some definitely some permanent changes, but then other things do start to wear off. That's, you know, just the general mellowness, I'd say, and the, you know, starts to wear off. That's really interesting. So the benefits of meditation can come from the practice itself, but then also the new actions and the way you change your life in accordance mm-hmm. with your new awareness. And that exactly. can also be the, the benefit. So it's, it, I'd imagine it's kind of hard to really <laughs> say what is causal and what's correlative. Exactly. And again, it's fractal because there's multiple different layers that it's working on. You know, and so to, and then they all feed back in on themselves. So it's, it's, it's really, and that's what makes it really interesting, exciting to study because there are so many different levels that it's working on. And, you know, and some people are looking at the brain and some people looking at behavior and some people are looking at, you know, attitudes and there's all sorts of different ways of looking at things. And so, and it's all, it's like a giant puzzle. And so, you know, there's different people that are working on different parts of the puzzle and hopefully one day we'll get, you know, the big picture. This may be too early in the research, but are there <laughs> any ways to accelerate your abilities to meditate and your ability to get the benefits of it? Uh, I have not heard of any. I mean, again, I think, um, well, that's an interesting question. (laughs) So certainly practicing regularly is going to, and for 40 minutes a day, you know, if you're only practicing 10 minutes a day versus if you're practicing 20 or 30 or 40 minutes a day, you know, sort of like exercise. So the more you do it, the more you're going to benefit. One huge caveat, um, and this is an important one. Some people then say that, oh, okay, so I'm going to practice two or three hours a day. No. <laughs> you know, sort of like if you exercise too hard, you're going to, you know, get an injury, a physical injury. If you practice more than about an hour a day, you're going to get psychological issues and it's you know people have actually like had mental breakdowns and had to go to psychiatric hospitals um because they decide that they're gonna practice you know for some people practice five or six hours a day um and certainly the monks do it but the monks again it's sort of like training for a marathon like you know it'd be sort of like saying okay go out and run for a marathon if you're a couch potato go out and run a marathon right no you're gonna get injured you know the monks work up to it you know gradually and and also under close supervision of a teacher who can sort of explain to them what's going on and the teacher tells them when they're ready to move on to the, you know, the next amount. So, uh, so because again, cause it's becoming a bit of an issue, like there's a growing awareness around this at that, you know, there is too much of a good thing. Um, so don't practice more than an hour. Uh, um, so, uh, so I'd say, yeah, the, the best way to accelerate though is, is to practice regularly and, um, and to, and to use a teacher. Cause again, it's very simple to do, but it's confusing because, again, you've got all sorts of things going on in your mind. And is this normal? Like the very first question you ask, like, well, mine's wondering, is that normal? Is that okay? What do I do about that? That's just the tip of the iceberg. You run into all sorts of things as you start to really get to know your mind. And a meditation teacher can help guide you, right? And so um, it's really, really – I occasionally get strange phone calls from people who think they're very advanced and I start talking to them and it's like, or they're having intense problems. And the first question I always ask them is, do you have a teacher? And the answer is always no. <laughs> and they've, you know, they've gone some dark alley. And so, uh, a teacher is just invaluable. So who are the most respected teachers? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it depends on the tradition, right? Yeah. Because I mean, within Buddhism, there's a couple different flavors of Buddhism. And then you got the Hindu and then, you know, the mantra. And so, and I don't even know all the different teachers. Um, and just because someone's a monk or whatever doesn't necessarily mean that they're good. I mean, that's, I mean, they maybe practice, but that doesn't mean they're a good teacher. Um, 
you know, certainly in the tradition I tradition I practice, there's a guy named Joseph Goldstein who's fantastic. He has a lot of online stuff, a lot of free online stuff. Um, there's also a woman named Sharon Salzberg, and out in California, there's um, a guy named Jack Cornfield, um, and they've written a bunch of books, and they're just they're top notch, fantastic teachers. Um, there's a lot of good stuff online these days. Um, again, those people, they're hard though, cause they, they have, you know, hundreds, you know, they basically teach large, uh, you don't really get one-on-one with those people. Right. Um, and so it, it's hard to find one-on-one teachers, but, uh, basically start asking around, start trying things out again, see what you you know, you'll find people. What's the state of meditation in American culture or cultural injured national? I guess maybe starting with America is probably the best thing. Is yeah. It's interesting. Is that? Is it an up, on an upswing? And you know, have you found I that your research so. is is helping to push that? Definitely, yeah. Which is and much more than I ever thought. <laughs> um, which is fantastic. Which is great. I mean, it's not just my research. There's other people doing research too. And I think you know, all of it together is just really having a big impact. Um, but yeah, no, because certainly when I started practicing yoga, well, at this point, twenty four years ago, twenty five years ago. You know, it was definitely a little thing and, you know, a couple people, you know, people started looking at me sideways like, oh, you do yoga? And now, you know, I was actually on the bus today and I heard, you know, this little couple talking about they're going to yoga class on Sunday morning and, you know, they're talking, <laughs> this whole thing. So um, I definitely think it's much more widespread than it was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, the attitudes towards it have changed for sure. And, yeah, a lot of people are starting it. And I've, certainly, I've talked to many meditation teachers who tell me that, yeah, that science has made a huge difference and that often they start off with a science um, because it helps the people who are a little bit nervous about it or unsure about it. It's sort of reassuring to them like, okay, yeah, this is going to have, you know, there's something real here. Awesome. And yeah. what do you think about the commercialization of meditation? Is it going to happen? Is it not going to yeah. happen? Oh, it's happening already, you know, for sure. Um even before all of this, I mean, there's certain meditation traditions where you have to pay, I think it's like $500 up front, <laughs> you know, something like that to get a mantra, you know, and like it's a secret mantra, but it turns out that everyone actually gets the same mantra. And if you look online, you can find it, <laughs> but you have to pay $500. Um, and so there's that whole aspect of it. But then also, again, like there's a bunch of apps now, um, you know, and some of them are free, but some of them we had to pay money for, uh, you know, to help you, like you can like track meditation the amount of time you spend meditating there's a couple apps where they show you who else is meditating and so when you you and you it's like like a social thing so you can look and say like, oh yes right now in the world there's you know 10,000 other people meditating and you can see who they are and where they are and where they're meditating you know that whole thing so there's that whole aspect of it um and definitely yeah there's some teachers who they're raking a lot of money because they're saying oh yeah you gotta give me money you know, so, but I think for the most part that I've not seen too much. The other thing that's big time being commercialized is like, you know, companies who are co-opting that whole idea. Um, you know, for a while there's a lot of ads that had like people doing yoga poses and then, you know, I think it was a Coke ad, like, you know, in a yoga pose and drinking a Coke while in a yoga pose and like, you know, ohm was everywhere and you know, some of this whole stuff. So I think there was a lot of that was happening. Uh, you know, people trying to get in on it. But uh, the actual teachers, I, I've not seen too much corruption. I'm sure it's out there, but um, it hasn't, I haven't seen just a ton of it, so thankfully. <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been such a terrific interview. I'm so excited to really get into the nuts and bolts of the science behind it. 
Is there anything that you'd like to share as we close out? Um, just give it a try <laughs> and see what works for you. The Buddha said, be a lamp unto yourself. And I think that's very important. Be a what? Be a lamp unto yourself. So find your own way, you know, and figure out what works for you. You know, t- and test it for yourself. You know, and really, you know, don't take don't take my word for it. Don't take your word for it. Don't take the word of some book for it. You know, you have to experience it yourself. Cool. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Sarah. This was a bunch of fun. Thank you. And I hope everybody <laughs> could uh, make it through all the noisy distractions in the background. <laughs> <laughs> okay.